Welcome to American Epistles, the story of our country, one letter at a time. I'm your host, Susan Ochere. American Epistles explores our history through the letters, journals, and diaries of ordinary Americans. If you're a new friend, welcome. If you're a returning friend, thank you for your continued support. If you haven't already done so, please leave a rating at Apple Podcasts or on Podchaser, which will help more friends find the show. Please also consider becoming a financial supporter of the show via Patreon, for which you will receive my undying gratitude. You will also get early access to episodes, whether you choose to contribute $1, $3, or $5 per month. For more info, click support on AmericanEpistles.com. Usually in an episode, I discuss a topic or event and include first-person narratives from several people who witnessed or experienced it. My next series will be on the Homestead Act, Westward Expansion, and its effect on Indigenous people. It usually takes me a few months to research a series, but in, in the meantime, I'm sharing a series devoted to the life and letters of a single person, Eleanor Pruitt Rupert. In 1909, Rupert was working in Denver as a laundress and housekeeper for Juliet Coney, a widowed schoolteacher from Boston. Rupert moved from Denver to Wyoming to be a housekeeper for homesteader Clyde Stewart and to eventually become a homesteader herself. Her letters to Mrs. Coney were later published in the Atlantic Monthly. The last episode of the Eleanor Rupert series included descriptions of two sisters, Sedalia and Regalia, of Eleanor's Thanksgiving, and a visit from Zebulon Pike. In this episode, it's Christmas. Eleanor also has a confession to make. I'm reading three letters. Dear Mrs. Coney, My happy Christmas resulted from the ex-sheriff of this county being snowbound here. It seems that persons who come from a lower altitude to this country frequently become bewildered, especially if in poor health, leave the train at any stop, and wander off into the hills, sometimes dying before they are found. The ex-sheriff cited a case, that of a young German who was returning from the Philippines, where he had been discharged after the war. He was the only child of his widowed mother, who has a ranch a few miles from here. No one knew he was coming home. One day, the cook belonging to the camp of a construction gang went hunting and came back running, wild with horror. He had found the body of a man. The coroner and the sheriff were notified, and next morning went out for the body, but the wolves had almost destroyed it. High up in a willow, under which the poor man had laid down to die, they saw a small bundle tied in a red bandana and fast to a branch. They found a letter addressed to whoever should find it, saying that the body was that of Benny Louderer, and giving them directions how to spare his poor mother the awful knowledge of how he died. Also there was a letter to his mother, asking her not to grieve for him and to keep their days faithfully. Their days, I afterward learned, were anniversaries which they had always kept, to which they was added Benny's day. Poor boy! When he realized that death was near, his every thought was for the mother. Well, they followed his wishes, and the casket containing the bare gnawed bones was sealed and never opened. And to this day, Mrs. Louderer thinks her boy died of some fever while yet aboard the transport. The manner of his death has been kept so secret that I, that I am the only one who has heard it. I was so sorry for the poor mother 
that I resolved to visit her the first opportunity I had. I am at liberty to go where I please when there is no one to cook for. So, when the men left, a few days later, I took Jereen and read and rode over to the Louderer Ranch. I had never seen Mrs. Louderer, and it happened to be Benny's day that I blundered in upon. I found her to be a dear old German woman living all alone, the people who do the work on the ranch living in another house two miles away. She had been weeping for hours when I got there, but in accordance with her custom on the many anniversaries, she had a real feast prepared, although no one had been bidden. She says that God always sends her guests, but that was the first time she had had a little girl. She had a little daughter once herself, little Gretchen, but all that was left was a sweet memory and a pitifully small mound on the ranch, quite near the house, where Benny and Gretchen are at rest beside, quote, their father, her louderer, end quote. She is such a dear old lady. She made us so welcome, and she is so entertaining. All the remainder of the day, we listened to stories of her children, looked at her pictures, and Jereen had a lovely time with a wonderful wooden doll that they had brought with them from Germany. Mrs. Louderer forgot to weep in recalling her childhood and showing us her treasures. And then our feast, for it was verily a feast. We had goose and it was so delicious. I couldn't tell you half the good things any more than I could have eaten some of all of them. We sat talking until far into the night, and she asked me how I was going to spend Christmas. I told her, probably in being homesick. She said that would never do, and suggested that we spend it together. She said it was one of their special days, and that the only happiness left her was in making someone else happy. So she had thought of cooking some nice things, and going to as many sheep camps as she could, taking with her the good things to the poor exiles, the sheep herders. I liked the plan and was glad to agree, but I never dreamed I should have so lovely a time. When the queer old wooden clock announced two, we went to bed. I left quite early the next morning with my head full of Christmas plans. You may not know, but cattlemen and sheepmen cordially hate each other. Mr. Stewart is a cattleman, and so I didn't mention my, Christ my Christmas plans to him. I saved all the butter I could spare for the sheep herders. They never have any. That and some jars of gooseberry jelly was all I could give them. I cooked plenty for the people here, and two days before Christmas I had the chance to go down to Mrs. Louderer's in a buggy, so we went. We found her up to her ears in cooking, and such sights and smells I could never describe. She was so glad I came early, for she needed help. I never worked so hard in my life or had a pleasanter time. Mrs. Louderer had sent a man out several days before to find out how many camps there were and where they were located. There were twelve camps, and that means twenty-four men. We roasted six geese, boiled three small hams and three hens. We had besides several meat loaves and links of sausage. We had twelve large loaves of the best rye bread, a small tub of doughnuts, twelve coffee cakes, more to be called fruit cakes, and also a quantity of little cakes with seeds, nuts, and fruit in them, so pretty to look at and so good to taste. These had a thick coat of icing, some brown, some pink, some white. I had thirteen pounds of butter and six pint jars of jelly, so we melted the jelly and poured it into twelve glasses. The plan was to start real early Christmas Eve morning, make our circuit of camps, 
and wind up the day at Frau O'Shaughnessy's to spend the night. Yes, Mrs. O'Shaughnessy is Irish, as Irish as the pigs in Dublin. Before it was day, the man came to feed and to get our horses ready. We were up betimes and had breakfast. The last speck was wiped from the shining stove, the kitchen floor was scrubbed, and the last small thing put in order. The man had four horses harnessed and hitched to the sled, on which was placed a wagon box filled with straw, hot rocks, and blankets. Our twelve apostles, that is what we called our twelve boxes, were lifted in and tied firmly into place. Then we clambered in, and away we went. Mrs. Louderer drove, and Tam O'Shanter and Paul Revere were snails compared to us. We didn't follow any road either, but went sweeping along across country. No one else in the world could have done it unless they were drunk. We went careening along hillsides without even slacking the trot. Occasionally, we struck a particularly stubborn bunch of sagebrush, and even the sled runners would jump into the air. We didn't stop to light, but hit the earth several feet in advance of where we left it. Luck was with us, though. I hardly expected to get through it with my head unbroken, but not even a glass was cracked. It would have done your heart good to see the sheepmen. They were all delighted, and when you consider that they live solely on canned corn and tomatoes, beans, salt pork, and coffee, you can fancy what they thought of their treat. They have mutton when it is fit to eat, but that is certainly not in winter. One man at each camp does the cooking, and the other herds. It doesn't make any difference if the cook never cooked before, and most of them never did. At one camp, where we stopped for dinner, they had a most interesting collection of fossils. After delivering our last apostle, we turned our faces toward Frau O'Shaughnessy's and got there just in time for supper. Mrs. O'Shaughnessy is a widow, too, and has quite an interesting story. She's a dumpy little woman whose small nose seems to be smelling the stars, it is so tip-tilted. She has the merriest blue eyes and the quickest wit. It really is worth a severe bumping just to be welcomed by her. It was so warm and cozy in her low little cabin. She had her table set for supper, but she laid plates for us and put before us a beautifully roasted chicken. Thrifty Mrs. Louderer thought it should have been saved until the next day, so she said to Frau O'Shaughnessy, quote, We hate to eat your hen. Best you save her till tomorrow. End quote. But Mrs. O'Shaughnessy answered, quote, Oh, tis no matter. "'Tis an old hen she was anyway." End quote. So we enjoyed the old hen, which was brown, juicy, and tender. When we had finished supper and were drinking our tay, Mrs. O'Shaughnessy told our fortunes with the tea leaves. She told mine first and said I would die an old maid. I said it was rather late for that, but she cheerfully replied, quote, "'Oh, well, better late than never,' she predicted for Mrs. Louderer that she would shortly catch a bow. Quote, "'Tis the next man you see that will come courting you.'" Before we left the table, someone knocked and a young man, a sheepherder, entered. He belonged to a camp a few miles away and is out from Boston in search of health. He had been into town and his horse was lamed, so he could not make it into camp, and he wanted to stay overnight. He was a stranger to us all, but Mrs. O'Shaughnessy made him at home and fixed such a tempting supper for him that I am sure he was glad of the chance to stay. 
He was very decidedly English and powerfully proud of it. He asked Mrs. O'Shaughnessy if she was Irish, and she said, quote, No, you heathen, it's Chinese all I am. Can't you tell it be me Cockney accent? End quote. Mr. Boutwell looked very much surprised. I don't know which was the funnier, the way he looked or what she said. We had a late breakfast Christmas morning, but before we were through, Mr. Stewart came. We had planned to spend the day with Mrs. O'Shaughnessy, but he didn't approve of our going into the sheep district, so when he found where we had gone, he came after us. Mrs. Louderer and he are old acquaintances, and he bosses her around like he tries to boss me. Before we left, Mrs. O'Shaughnessy's married daughter came, so we knew she would not be lonely. It was almost one o'clock when we got home, but all hands helped, and I had plenty cooked anyway. So we soon had a good dinner on the table. Mr. Stewart had prepared a Christmas box for Jerrine and me. He doesn't approve of white waists in the winter. I had worn one at the wedding, and he felt personally aggrieved. For me, in the box, were two dresses, that is, the material to make them. One is brown and red-checked, the other green with a white fleck in it, both outing flannel. For Jerrine, there was a pair of shoes and stockings, both stockings full of candy and nuts. He is very bluff in manner, but he really is the kindest person. Mrs. Louderer stayed until New Year's Day. My Christmas was really a very happy one. Your friend, Eleanor Rupert. The letter continues. An interesting day on this ranch is the day the cattle are named. If Mr. Stewart had children, he would as soon think of leaving them unnamed as to let a beastie go without a name. On the day they vaccinated, he came into the kitchen and told me he would need me to help name the critters. So he and I assembled in a safe place and took turns naming the calves. As fast as a calf was vaccinated, it was run out of the chute, and he or I called out a name for it, and it was booked that way. The first two he named were the Duke of Monmouth and the Duke of Montrose. I called my first Oliver Cromwell and John Fox. The poor, quote, Mon, end quote, had to have revenge, so the next ugly, scrawny little beast he called the, quote, Poop of Room, end quote. And it was a heifer calf, too. This morning, I had the startling news that the poop had eaten too much alfalfa and was all, quote, swelled up, end quote, and moreover, he had, quote, steal it, end quote. I don't know which I find more astonishing, that the Pope had stolen alfalfa or that he had eaten it. We have a swell lot of names, but I am not sure I could tell you which is Bloody Mary or which is Elizabeth, or indeed, which is which of any of them. E.R. April 15, 1910. Dear Mrs. Coney, I find upon rereading your letter that I did not answer it all when I wrote you. You must think me very indifferent, but I really don't mean to be. My house joins on to Mr. Stewart's house. It was built that way so I could hold down my land and a job at the same time. I see the wisdom of it now, though at first I did not want it that way. My boundary lines run within two feet of Mr. Stewart's house, so it was quite easy to build on. I think the Patterson's Ranch is about 25 miles from us. I am glad to tell you they are doing splendidly. 
Gail is just as thrifty as she can be, and Bobby is steady and making money fast. Their baby is the dearest little thing. I have heard that Sedalia is to marry a Mormon bishop, but I doubt it. She puts on very disgusting airs about our Bobby, and she patronizes Gail most shamefully. But Gail, bless her unconscious heart, is so happy in her husband and son that she doesn't know Sedalia is insulting. My dear old grandmother, whom I loved so much, has gone home to God. I used to write long letters to her. I should like a few addresses of old persons who are as lonely as she was, who would like letters such as I write. You know I can't be brief. I have tried and cannot. If you know of any persons who would not tire of my long accounts and would care to have them, you will be doing me a favor to let me know. I have not treated you quite frankly about something you had a right to know about. I am ashamed and I regret very much that I have not told you. I so dread the possibility of you losing your friendship that I will never tell you unless you promise me beforehand to forgive me. I know that is unfair, but it is the only way I can see out of a difficulty that my foolish reticence has led me into. Few people perhaps consider me reticent, but in some cases I am afraid I am even deceitful. Won't you make it easy to fess so I may, ha so I may be happy again? Truly your friend, Eileen Rupert. June 16, 1910. My dear friend, your card just to hand. I wrote you some time ago telling you I had a confession to make and have had no letter since, so thought perhaps you were scared I had done something too bad to forgive. I am suffering just now from eye strain and can't see to write long at a time, but I reckon I had better confess and get it done with. The thing I have done is to marry Mr. Stewart. It was such an inconsistent thing to do that I was ashamed to tell you, and too I was afraid you would think I didn't need your friendship and might desert me. Another of my friends thinks that way. I hope my eyes will be better soon, and then I will write you a long letter. Your old friend with a new name, Eleanor Stewart. The letters of Eleanor Stewart are in the public domain. The music is performed by Pretlow Stevenson IV. My thanks to Rebecca Postupak and Jessica Lincoln for their monthly support. Go to AmericanEpistles.com and click support on the main menu to visit Amer the American Epistles Patreon page. Check the Pinterest page for images related to today's episode. Please like the podcast on Facebook, follow on Twitter at Ordinary Letters, or leave a comment and rating at Podchaser or on Apple Podcasts. American Epistles is also on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, and all the places. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you.